This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today, we have the February 7th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes updates on the war from Algiers, Australia, Cairo, Honolulu, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please be sure to leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's John Daly. On two widely separated fighting fronts, the United Nations today are moving into the final stages of their campaigns. The Russians are choking off Rostov, and in the Solomons on Guadalcanal, United States Army forces have outflanked the Japs to make a substantial advance. In North Africa, bad weather is once again holding up operations, but we are using that lull to good advantage, consolidating our positions in central Tunisia and checking the German drives around Pondufa. Now for the first direct report... Today, on today's major developments, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Algiers, Charles Collingwood reporting. Charles Collingwood in North Africa. Today, I want you to hear one of the most remarkable stories of the war. But before I tell you the story, there's one bit of news that might interest you. Winston Churchill has visited a light force headquarters here for a while on his way back to London. Now, here is the story. It's the story of Lieutenant Bernard Gillespie, an American bomber pilot from Gila Bend, Arizona. Briefly, this is the story. Lieutenant Gillespie was bombing Gabbard. In the blaze of anti-aircraft fire, his plane was set on fire and exploded in mid-air. Somehow, Gillespie got out and parachuted to Earth. He was captured by the Italians and taken to Tripoli. There, they put him on a submarine to take him and other prisoners to Italy. In the middle of the Mediterranean, the Italian sub was attacked by a British plane and sunk. Lieutenant Gillespie got out and was picked up by a British destroyer, and now he is back here. In fact, he is right here in the studio. I look on him with awe. Lieutenant Gillespie, how in the world did you ever get out of that plane over Gabbard? Oh, it really wasn't so hard. I was in the middle of the course, and when the plane exploded, we went spinning off by ourselves. I opened the escape hatch, and the centrifugal force just tossed me out. And then the Italian caught you. That's right. We were only about 20 miles from Gabriel, and they sent a detail out for us before we could get away. What were those Italian soldiers like? They weren't much good. They were dirty little fellows and mixed up uniforms. And they took you down to Tripoli, then? That's right. They kept us around Gabriel for a couple of days, and then they put us in a wicked little truck for a night, and we started off to Tripoli. The truck kept breaking down, and it took us 15 hours to get there. Well, what did they do with you when they got you to Tripoli? Oh, they put us in an old fort and they kept us there for a week or so. 
put a German stooge in with us who was in a British captain's uniform. The Italian threw him in the door with all kinds of curses and gestures to make it look real, but we spotted him right away. Well, Lieutenant Goresti, how did they feed you there? Soup and camels meet most of the time. How is camels meat? It's all right if you're hungry. They fed us a lot better on the summer, you know. The Italians feed their submarine crews, submarine crews a lot better than they feed their soldiers. I suppose they have to. How long were you in that sub? We left Tripoli about seven, just after dusk. We weren't supposed to leave that night, but the British were raiding the port, and the Italians got panicking and just pulled out. About three the next afternoon, we were attacked. And what attacked you? A British Beaufort. He brought depth charges. That was an awful feeling, sitting there in the dark, waiting for the water to start pouring in. I'll bet it was. Did the Beaufort sink the sub? No, just triple it. Then a British destroyer came up and started shelling us. That was when I got out. Were you in the water long? Oh, about half an hour, then a destroyer picked me up. Boy, was I glad to get aboard. I'll bet you were, Lieutenant Gillespie. And now this is Charles Collingwood returning you to New York. Economic Director Burns has just announced in Washington that shoes will be rationed immediately. The rate will be three pairs per person a year. The new order covers all kinds of leather shoes except house slippers and soft-soled infant shoes. We'll have full details from CBS correspondents in Washington as the story develops there later in the program. More news in just a minute. But first, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. All facilities of both great Admiral plants are devoted to producing radio communications equipment for the United States Army and Navy. We'd like to spend a few seconds telling you of the part radio plays in the sea battle. Our Navy is the greatest afloat today, chiefly because it has developed coordinated action to so high a degree. Through radio, the job of every man, every weapon, every ship is accurately woven into an efficient plan of battle. When a plane or submarine spots enemy vessels, it radios the flagship of the fleet. The flagship radios the aircraft carriers to get planes aloft, tells cruisers their positions for battle, orders destroyers to rush specified enemy craft and drop torpedoes. Radio in individual planes coordinates the air fighting. Radio pairs off American battleships with those of the enemy. Radio directs the fire of the big guns. In a fleet action, radio plays its important role on the surface, in the air, and under the sea. Radio weaves the pattern of a victorious sea battle by coordinating the actions of men, weapons, and ships. We Americans can be eternally thankful the United States Navy has given Navy radio men the best possible training for their work and the best possible equipment with which to do that work. It is the best equipment. Admiral is sure of that, for Admiral is building Navy radio and knows the high standards which must be met and are being met by the same workers who produce the high standard radio of peacetime, Admiral, America's smart set. Now here once again for Admiral Radio is John Daly. In the Southwest Pacific, our flyers have scored an impressive victory over Jap planes in the New Guinea area. For a direct report from that war zone, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Australia, William J. Dunn reporting. As Australia watches intently, the air and sea actions in the Solomons. One fact stands out prominently in the news from the Southwest Pacific area. That fact being the unmistakable increase in Allied air attacks on Japanese bases northeast, northeast of this continent. 
from which aid might be directed to an enemy force further south. During the eight days ending Saturday, Allied planes based in this area made a total of 36 separate raids on enemy bases or shipping in New Britain, Bougainville, Bunker, and the Admiralty Islands. This is almost double the number of raids on similar bases in the preceding week and covers a much wider area than has been the custom in normal operations. Rabaul, of course, is the enemy's number one base south of Cook, has been subjected to the severest blows. That was William J. Dunn in Australia. We return you now to CBS in New York. The biggest news in England is that Prime Minister Churchill has returned home after conferences in Casablanca with President Roosevelt, conferences with the Turks, and a visit to the British Eighth Army in Tripoli. As is to be expected, the Prime Minister's visit to Turkey has caused a resurgence of speculation on the future participation of Turkey in the war. Today, there is a report from Ankara that observers see a definite possibility of the Allies seeking use of the Dardanelles Straits for transit of unarmed merchant ships carrying supplies to Russia. This speculation is tied in with a report that the Soviet ambassador to Turkey was host last night to Turkish Premier Sukru Sarajoglu at a dinner attended by the American ambassador and the British ambassador. It is definite evidence of improved relations between Turkey and Russia. In the past, the relations between those two countries have not been of the best, and very probably a part of Prime Minister Churchill's job when he went to Turkey was to get a, re a rapprochement between the Turkish government and the Soviets. The fact that the Soviet ambassador to Turkey was the host to the premier of Turkey at a dinner is really a very significant development, principally because the ambassadors of foreign countries in other capitals are usually ignored if the relationships between the two countries are not of the best or are not improving. If there's a deterioration of relationships between two countries, the ambassador of the country, whether it be ours or anybody else's, is usually given a brush off, as we would say in this country, by the government officials of the country to which he has been assigned. The developments between the Turkish and the Russian relations are very important to the progress of the war in the general Mediterranean area. There is, of course, a great deal of speculation about the possibilities of campaigns on the underside of Europe. The Allies are planning all sorts of campaigns. We got that much news out of the Casablanca conferences. But any major allied move in the Mediterranean area must, of itself, have some help from the Turks, whether it be beneficent neutrality or action on their part, military action, either one would be helpful. One big possibility in the way of invasions into the underside of Europe would be an allied drive up through Crete, Greece, into Yugoslavia, and then into Austria. The drive would be difficult because the country over which such a military campaign must be conducted would be very hard terrain to take modern weapons through. However, the Turks, if they came in with us, could go up through Bulgaria from European Turkey, and it would aid our cause substantially. And now for another direct report from overseas. Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Cairo, Chester Morrison reporting. From tonight, we shall go ahead in six seconds from now. In the last war, I spent a lot of time in a seacoast town at home that was a port of call for transports bringing troops a long way around to Europe. And one of the things I remember 
is the procession of large numbers of men who were dumped ashore for a day's leave into a town they didn't know and which didn't know them. The town, being an old town, accustomed to the antics of our own fleet on leave, found it no remarkable circumstance that a lot of homeless, lonesome military men, restless after a long voyage, should appear overnight out of nowhere and depart two days later. To the men, it was high adventure. To the town, it was routine. To preserve its own sanity, the town pretended the men were not there. And usually, when nobody paid any attention to them, the men went away somewhere else. But I, among thousands of others, never will forget a sign sticking up from the lawn of a park in that town. It read, Sailors and dogs keep off the grass. Something of the same kind is happening here. This is an even older town than Norfolk, Virginia. And from time to time, thousands of soldiers have passed through it. Phoenicians, Romans, Greeks and Arabs and French and British, even Americans. I had lunch today with a soldier whose complaint must have sounded in this strange city centuries ago as it sounded in Norfolk in 1917. I've got the dough, the soldier said. And back home, I could go into any hotel I wanted to. But here, just because I'm a private, they tell me they have no rooms. And from there, it's an easy step to a blanket indictment of all the factors responsible for the thing he was complaining about. Some of this kind of complaint will bounce back to you people at home sooner or later. Don't let it worry you. When our boys here get used to routine hardships, they won't mind the experiences they're having now. This is Chester Morrison returning you to CBS New York. Back across the Pacific, another American fighting man, a submarine skipper, is standing by to tell us of his successes against the enemy. Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. here at Pearl Harbor, a submarine commander who has just returned from a patrol in Japanese waters. He is Lieutenant Commander David C. Wright of Detroit, Michigan, who is now a veteran of several successful patrols against Japanese warships and supply ships in the Pacific. Commander Wright, what luck this time? We had a short but very active and interesting trip. It started out by sinking a nice-sized cargo ship one night, and later we tangled with a convoy which took the remainder of our torpedoes. Tell us about that cargo ship, Commander. Yes, we were conducting an offensive patrol in the Yellow Sea. While closing the China coast and trying to fix our position one night, we sighted an object which we thought at first was an island we'd been looking for. Coming closer, we discovered that it was a good-sized cargo ship for a naval auxiliary. We continued on the surface and fired a salvo of torpedoes at him, all of which missed. This was quite a blow to our pride. So we shifted to full power on the engines, reloaded the tubes, and started chasing. It was a bright moonlight night, and I felt pretty sure he could see us. He picked up what speed he could, but it wasn't enough, and we were soon at very close range, directly astern of him. I then fired one torpedo, which blew him up. Blew him up? You mean the ship blew apart? Yes, he almost disintegrated. There was a terrific explosion, a tremendous sheet of yellow flame, and he went under in about five minutes. He must have had a considerable quantity of explosives aboard. 
Quite a few of our people came up on the bridge to watch her go down. We were only a few hundred yards from the ship. What was your next encounter, Commander? One evening sometime later, just before evening twilight, the officer of the deck reported seeing three Japanese ships in column a considerable distance away. Our position was such that it was impossible to close and fire during daylight, so I started chasing on a converging course. Part of the run was made submerged to escape detection. After dark, I surfaced. There were many fishing boats all around us. We had to thread our way through these close aboard, and I was afraid they might give an alarm. Did they? No, we got through them all right. After about an hour's chase at full speed, we were close astern of the last ship in column. The first torpedo missed, but the second one hit him in the stern. This stopped him and jammed his rudder hard left. He presented a nice target as he swung, and we fired an rudder which hit him amidships on the port side. He sank immediately, and we started after the others. The alarm was now given, so the others put on all the speed they could. It took several hours to overtake them, but we finally got one torpedo in each of the two of them. That's good shooting. I couldn't wait to see the ship sink because our lookouts reported escort vessels chasing us, and we had to clear the area to charge batteries. Commander White, I happen to know that you've been twice decorated for your aggressive attacking and sinking of enemy ships in the Pacific. Could you tell us about some of your other patrols? Well, we've sunk some ships and we've damaged more. The Pacific used to be a pretty big ocean to us, but now it's like our own backyard. We operate from one end to the other without giving the matter a second thought. And that involves miles, thousands of them. Commander White, they tell me that once you men get into the submarine service, you wouldn't change over to any other service for anything. Why is this so? It's hard to explain, but it's true. It's not the softest job in the world, but there's a lot of satisfaction in it. It's certainly been gratifying to work with such a fine bunch of officers and men as I have on my ship. They're really wonderful, these boys. I wish I could tell everybody what these men have to undergo and how they do it with lighthearted cheerfulness and courage. Of course, every submarine commander thinks he has the best crew in the world, but I wouldn't want to trade mine for any. Commander, I know that Mrs. White in San Francisco and your parents back in Detroit will join me in adding a word to that. We're glad that our submarines are commanded by men like you. As the Navy men say, well done. This has been an interview with Lieutenant Commander David C. White, commanding officer of the United States submarine, just returned from another successful Pacific patrol. This is Webley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. We return you to CBS in New York. The official Russian midday communique gave some details of the capture of Batysk, 10 miles below Rostov, which was announced last night. That battle followed the now familiar format of Red Army units systematically clearing Germans out of one street after another. Other than that, the communique merely said that Russian forces conducted offensive operations in the same directions as before, toward Rostov, Kursk, and Kharkov. On all three of these main drives, the Russians occupied some more towns, but the communique gives no details. However, frontline reports said that Russian forces had reached a point only three miles south of Rostov and were preparing to force a crossing of the Don. And just a short while ago, the British news agency Reuters reported that Stockholm had heard a Moscow broadcast reporting that Russian troops crossed the Don today and violent street fighting is raging inside Rostov itself. That report is, of course, unofficial, but the communiques may confirm it later. Now, for more news on the shoe rationing program announced since we went on the air, and for the latest report on the Solomons, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. 
Fifteen minutes ago at the White House, economic stabilizer Burns announced that shoes will be rationed effective at midnight. From now on, he said, every American can buy three pairs of shoes, but no more, each year. Infant shoes and slippers will not be rationed. Stamp number 17 of War Ration Book Number 1 will be good for one pair of shoes until next June 15. The stamp will be transferable within a family, however, so that if a wife wants four pairs and her husband can get by on two, well, that will be quite all right. Shoes are being rationed for two reasons. The Army and our Lend-Lease allies have created a great demand for shoes, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 million pairs a year. The second reason is that since the war, more civilians have been buying shoes than ever before in history. Sooner or later, a shortage would have resulted, so that the OPA, acting under orders from the War Production Board, has stepped in to assure us all of a reasonable and equitable number of shoes each year. The War Production Board, however, will direct manufacturers to reduce the number of styles and to limit colors to four, black, white, brown, and army russet, aiming ultimately at the mass production of only several serviceable, moderately priced war model shoes. Leather for shoe repairs will not be rationed, at least for the time being, and liberal allocations of shoe leather for the benefit of shoemakers has been made. There was a Navy communique an hour ago. It wasn't the one we've been waiting for with news of the outcome of the naval forays off the Solomons, but it contained some very good news nevertheless. Our troops on Guadalcanal, the Navy says, have outflanked the Japanese to the west of Henderson Field. Presumably, we advanced from 40 to 50 miles without encountering much resistance, circling around the enemy center at Cape Esperance and taking up new positions at Titi, a half mile west of Marovovo on the northwestern coast of the island. For the time being, at least, the Japanese appear to be virtually surrounded, and Henderson Field has been freed from any further threat. Meanwhile, American dive bombers have again attacked Munda, and other planes have bombed some newly installed Japanese positions on Kolombangara Island in the New Georgia Group. I now return you to CBS New York and John Daly. And here in New York is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The military successes of the Red Army are already having their effects on both flanks of the long Russian fighting line. To the south, the Turks have entertained the British Prime Minister and his chief military advisors in the conference on Turkey's soil, a conference in which he talked with the President of Turkey and Turkey's military chiefs. The significance of this event can hardly be overestimated, both as to its possible military results and as to the, its influence in strengthening Allied prestige throughout the Muslim world. To the north, meanwhile, persistent reports come out of Finland to the effect that that country is anxious for a separate peace with Russia and desires to dissociate herself from any connection with the Axis. This may be more easily aspired to than accomplished as long as German troops remain on Finnish soil in any numbers. There can be little doubt that the Finns find their position a most difficult one, but now the situation is changing. The relief of Leningrad... The reopening of the rail communications of that city afford the Russians an opportunity to make it into a great base of operations for further offensives in the north. The Finns know very well neither their own decimated forces nor the few German divisions remaining in Finland could stand before the onset of a full-scale Russian assault, but they are likewise aware that the Russians may now find the opportunity to press back the German left flank along the southern shore of the Gulf of Finland. And in this, should this be the case, the German troops in Finland would be cut off of any hope of support. Hence, many Finns must be wondering whether the time may not be at hand to 
to break with Germany and seek a separate peace with Moscow, a peace in which they might hope for the good offices of the United States. Now here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Last week we suggested you have your Admiral dealer put your name on his list. That is, ask him to check your radio twice a year regularly. Here's the reason. Certain vital parts are becoming difficult to obtain. If your set is checked regularly by an Admiral dealer, he'll keep those vital parts in operation as long as possible. Admiral dealers know how. And if he sees they won't last, he can start looking for replacements far enough in advance to ensure getting whatever you need by the time you need it. Yes, and there's another important advantage to being on an Admiral dealer's regular list of service customers. In these days of shortages, it's only human nature for any dealer to take care of his regular customers first. So if you don't want to be disappointed when your radio runs into real trouble, call your Admiral dealer now. Get your name on his list. Have him check your radio twice a year regularly. Be assured of tip-top performance for the duration. And don't forget, Admiral dealers have the backing of the entire Admiral organization. In peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. This week, the United States salutes her Boy Scouts, a million and a half strong. Almost without exception, every Boy Scout has done more than a full share toward winning the war and is still on the job, doubling and redoubling his all-out effort. A salute, then, to the Boy Scouts, an organization of which America is proud. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave direct from the leading news centers of the world. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.